name is Bryn Spencer. I'm your host. And if this is your first time, or if you're a regular listener coming back, thank you so much for joining me. In case you don't know, or I don't know, maybe you forgot or something, this is a podcast about all things bread. I cover every topic having to do with bread and bread making, from the science of yeast to history of bread among class and culture divides to like the bare bones of what we can define bread as being. Very excited to announce some changes to the broadcast and the format of the show. First off, in addition to publishing audio episodes of the show, I will also be publishing full transcripts and notes on my website. Under my blog page, if you go to thebreadcast.com, you'll be able to find transcripts starting with this episode. In the show notes uh, section of those posts, I'll be including summary of each episode as well as any links to academic papers, articles, recipes, anything that I think is interesting and pertains to the show. Normally, all of that stuff would be in the episode description, but I'm just moving it over to a tidier spot. Second item of business is that very soon I am introducing a new series of special episodes called Loafing Around. In these special episodes, I sit down and have a conversation with bakers, authors, and influential voices in the bread-making Stay tuned for those uh, coming in April. I'm very excited. Alright, lastly but not leastly, if you, the listener, have any requests about what I talk about on the show or what guests I have on Loafing Around, you can fill out the form at the bottom of my homepage on the website. If you want to know more about a specific kind of bread or if you have a question about how to bake something, please don't hesitate to ask. I respond to every message. Okay, that's it for housekeeping. Uh, Thanks for bearing with me there. Let's get right into the episode. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Breadcast. My name is Bryn Spencer. I'm your host. And if this is your first time, or if you're a regular listener coming back, thank you so much for joining me. In case you don't know, or I don't know, maybe you forgot or something, this is a podcast about all things bread. I cover every topic having to do with bread and bread making, from the science of yeast to history of bread among class and culture divides to like the bare bones of what we can define bread as being. I am very excited to announce some changes to the broadcast and the format of the show. First off, in addition to publishing audio episodes of the show, I will also be publishing full transcripts and notes on my website. Under my blog page, if you go to thebreadcast.com, you'll be able to find transcripts starting with this episode. In the show notes uh, section of those posts, I'll be including summary of each episode, as well as any links to academic papers, articles, recipes, anything that I think is interesting and pertains to the show. Normally, all of that stuff would be in the episode description, but I'm just moving it over to a tidier spot. Second item of business is that very soon I am introducing a new series of special episodes called Loafing Around. In these special episodes, I sit down and have a conversation with bakers, authors, and influential voices in the bread-making world. Stay tuned for those uh, coming in April. I'm very excited. All right. Lastly, but not leastly, 
If you, the listener, have any requests about what I talk about on the show or what guests I have on Loafing Around, you can fill out the form at the bottom of my homepage on the website. If you want to know more about a specific kind of bread or if you have a question about how to bake something, please don't hesitate to ask. I respond to every message. Okay, that's it for housekeeping. Uh, Thanks for bearing with me there. Let's get right into the episode. episode of the breadcast I'm going to be going over the in the kitchen experience of bread making. Theory is great, history is fascinating, science is useful, but that doesn't mean all that much if when the time comes you still don't actually know how to make bread. So I'm going to go over the basics, the pressing questions including what ingredients should I have, what equipment do I need, do I need fancy equipment, why the hell does my bread look like that, And how do I even know when my bread is done? Starting off with what to have uh, in your kitchen to bake bread, and then we'll move into stages that bread goes through, and then finish off by baking a hypothetical loaf together, plus everything in between. So let's get into it. Brunch bread. You likely already have all the ingredients you need in your pantry. Flour, sugar, salt, clean water, and yeast are really all you need to make a simple loaf of French bread. If you are just starting out, maybe you moved and are filling up your pantry for the first time, or are planning on making bread but don't know what you need, here's what I suggest you grab. And you can find all of this at your local supermarket. First, a bag of active dry yeast. They usually come in one or two pound sealed bags, and one that size will last you forever. Once you open it, just keep it in the fridge. And depending on how often you bake bread, it can last you literally for years. Active dry yeast is my personal favorite to work with because it's the most flexible of yeasts. It can be used for a starter or just thrown right into the recipe. If you're feeling uneasy around yeast, I recommend listening to my previous episode where I explain all about it. It's titled All About Yeast. Second thing I recommend is a variety of flowers. The holy trinity, if you will, of general-use flours are all-purpose white flour, white bread flour, and whole wheat flour. All-purpose, as the name suggests, is good for just about anything, and this is what most recipes are made with in mind. Whole wheat flour is for adding more nutrients to a bread and creating a slightly sweeter, nuttier outcome. I usually use this flour in addition to regular white flour, in things like muffins, nut breads, and loaves that I want to make more hearty. Now, for whole wheat flour and white flour, I prefer to buy generic brands in bulk. When buying flour, think about how much and how often you bake, and then calculate how much you need based on how much of each flour you use in the recipes that you bake regularly. For example, I bake various breads two or three times a week, mostly with white flour. So I buy 10 pound bags of flour from Costco every two or three months. For whole wheat flour, a five pound bag will last me just about as long. If you're unsure of how much you bake and therefore how much flour you need, always round up. It can really never hurt to have too much. In terms of quality, when it comes to white and whole wheat flour, I'm not too picky. I know some hardcore bakers who have specific preferences about how their flour is produced and where it comes from, which is totally fair. When I bake for myself, I'm usually not too concerned about that though. 
since I think you can make excellent bread using just about anything. The one exception to that, though, is that I prefer to use unbleached white flour. Bleaching flour, to get it as white as possible, strips the flour of most of its remaining nutrients. So really all that's left is starch, gluten, and protein from the endosperm. In terms of specialty flours, like bread flour, rye, semolina, or corn flour, I'm a little bit more picky. Since I use those things less than regular flour and don't buy in bulk, I can afford to be choosier about where and when I buy them. I like to keep some King Arthur bread flour and semolina flour around for breads that need high gluten, and if I need some sort of special flour that I don't have, like gluten-free, that's my go-to. But in general terms of flours, I recommend you keep around unbleached white flour, whole wheat flour, bread flour, and perhaps maybe an alternative grain to experiment with, like rye or semolina. There is an endless variety of specialty flours for literally every purpose under the sun, but I recommend you start with those first. And remember to keep your flour in an airtight container completely away from moisture, or it will mold and be gross. Don't do that. Salt and sugar are also often essential ingredients in bread. White sugar works best, but for a more natural flavor, you can always substitute it for honey as well. As for salt, fine table salts works, excuse me, fine table salt works just fine. For the most part, I recommend saving your sea salt and nice kosher salt for topping, but in flatbreads, I actually do like to find little flakes of salt between layers. I think that's nice. Um, so that is an option as well. So in terms of essential ingredients, that's really all I recommend. Yeast, flour, sugar, and salt. Any additional flavors or spices are completely up to you. Rosemary, Parmesan, and Greek olives are like my favorite personal combination. Uh, you can use oregano, thyme, dill, parsley, onions, and chives, garlic, nuts, or cheese, or fruit. Literally anything. After you've got the basics down, don't be afraid to experiment. Find out what you like, what you don't, what works, what doesn't. That's the best part. Trust me. So let's talk tools. Most breads don't require a ton of fancy tools or equipment. Some breads don't even require an oven. But there are a few things that I find give me the most flexibility and room for creativity. Here are the three things in terms of tools that I recommend you have for making a loaf of any kind. A large bowl, a heavy tea towel or cling film, and an oven that works. That's it. If you want to get fancy, you can grab a flexible spatula and a clean countertop, but those three things are really all you need. A bowl for mixing and kneading, a towel or cling film for creating the right proofing environment, and an oven for baking. Provided that your flour is, is already milled and your ingredients are measured out, those three things are really all you need to make a successful loaf of bread. For unleavened flatbread, you need even less, just a bowl for mixing and a heat source for frying or baking. However, by no means do we have to limit ourselves to the bare minimum. One of the most fun parts about making bread is seeing what you can do with different things and seeing how adding or substituting an ingredient or tool will change the outcome of your loaf. Here is a list of things that I think are helpful for baking bread that's just above and beyond. First and foremost, a baking scale is extremely useful. Like most other thing in, things in this world, bread is, regrettably, based in math. 
Specifically, breads are based in ratios. If you're an American like I am, or live in the U.S., then you know that here, unlike the rest of the sensible world, we use the imperial system, not the metric system. So that means that most of our recipes are translated into cups, tablespoons, and teaspoons. For most culinary practices, that's not a problem. We can be content to be weird. But for baking, where too much or too little of something can make or break a dish, weighing your ingredients can actually be much easier. With measuring cups, when you scoop out your flour, whatever, it could be packed in or it could be loose. So you may actually have a little bit less or a little bit more than a cup. Even with leveling off the top of your measurement, this way is never really accurate. That's why in recipes you may see directions like a cup of packed brown sugar or one scant teaspoon of nutmeg, for example. Now there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but for baking we want to be as accurate in our measurements as possible. I do say that with no small amount of irony, considering that I am notorious for not measuring anything, anything at all, when it comes to cooking for myself, uh, especially spices. You measure that with your heart. Ask the stars. Ask the void. I don't know, but I'll be damned if I let a recipe tell me how much garlic I should use. Anyway, with bread, weighing the ingredients using a baking scale is very helpful, since most breads will be described as their ratio of wet to dry ingredients. Flour is always 100%, whether you're using 10 or 100 grams, and the amount of water, referred to as hydration, is some percentage relative to that. So if you have a recipe with 100 grams of flour, 50 grams of water, 1 gram of salt, half a gram of sugar, that recipe will be 100% flour, 50% hydration, 1% salt, and half a gram, half, sorry, half a percentage of sugar. That is a made-up recipe, but you get it. The point is that weighing the ingredients is easier to turn into ratios than measuring in cups, especially since most recipes outside of the U.S. use that system to describe bread. Another th interesting thing about bread ratios or baker's math is that once you start to get familiar with it, it becomes easier to predict what breads will look like without ever having to see a recipe. For example, I know a bread with 80% hydration, um, half a percent of yeast, 0.2% uh, salt is going to produce something much like shibata, which will likely have a 4 to 12 hour proofing period that will have a shiny, more elastic crumb in irregular air holes and a medium to low rise in the oven, just because of those ratios. That was also a made up recipe, but again, you get it. If you interact with bread often, that could be something that's useful to know. If you're making flatbreads, cookies, or any pastry that you need to roll out, another thing I recommend you have is a rolling pin. I prefer a wooden tapered pin without handles. It's good for everything, and just like the spinniness of modern pins gets in the way. Not a fan. But any rolling pin will do just fine. In terms of things to bake your bread on, I recommend grabbing a loaf tin or two for things like sandwich breads and other high-rise breads, and two or three baking sheets as well. It's amazing what you can do with just a few trays. In that same vein, for getting the best crust on a loaf of bread, I highly recommend looking into a Dutch oven. It's a big cast iron pot that weighs like 10,000 pounds. It's great for soups and pot roast, and also great for bread. It is cast iron, which means that it lasts forever, but you also have to take care of it. 
Um, it can't go in the dishwasher and it has to be seasoned once you get it. However, baking a loaf of bread in one with the lid on creates the right environment for steam and an open crumb. Taking off the lid in the last 10 or so minutes of baking creates a really crisp crust without burning the edges. I highly recommend. Spray bottles, or those Mr. Bottles from like the dollar store, are really awesome for creating steam in the oven, which is actually what gives you those big holes in crumb, like really big irregular holes um, in high hydration breads. Also great. A bench scraper or a bench knife is perfect for dividing dough, scraping hard to knead dough together, and also for cleaning up. In cleanup, there is like if there's dough and flour on the countertop, bakeries will usually just scrape it off into the trash using a dough scraper or a bench knife before going in with soap and hot water. Don't do that at home if you have countertops that are easily scratched though, like marble or something precious. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> but if you have something that's hard to clean up, like a really sticky dough, that can also work. Another thing I recommend getting um, or looking into is getting a proofing basket. These are small coiled wickered baskets about the size of a loaf tin. These are meant to support the structure of your bread as it rises. So you coat the inside of the basket with a generous amount of flour and then after you're done kneading, you plop it in the basket that, uh, that's face up and then cover it with a towel, for privacy of course. And then you leave it for us for however long it needs to. And then as the dough rises and expands, the sides of the basket help the dough keep its shape. And the spiral design of the basket transfers onto the bread, making a really cool pattern. When you're done, uh, you take the bread out by flipping it out onto parchment paper. And the loaf now has a firmer shape that, I don't know, if you hadn't let it rise to support, it wouldn't have. Um, you, do, you do have to take the dough out. Uh, if you put a proofing basket in the oven, it will catch on fire. Don't do that. Uh, please. <laughs> I've talked to many people who thought that the proofing basket was meant to go in the oven. Um, it's not a loaf tin. Please don't put it in the oven. It is wood. Uh, just to repeat one more time, don't put that in the oven. It will catch on fire. Got it? Cool. Awesome. Love that. Uh, they come in different shapes and sizes, and you can find these on Amazon, at Target, or really any culinary store worth its salt. I highly recommend. After rising, maybe even in a proofing basket, it's always important to score your loaf by taking a razor or a sharp knife and slicing a line about a centimeter deep into the top of your loaf. This allows a place for steam to escape as your bread expands and bakes in the oven. Without a score seam, Steam will escape wherever the structure of the dough is weakest, effectively causing a giant tear in your bread wherever it can. There are scoring razors that are especially meant for this, but if you don't have one, a really, really sharp knife will work just as well. It's not a big deal. So as for ingredients and equipment, those are the basics. But I want to point out that you don't need any fancy equipment. You don't need the finest ingredients to make a good loaf of bread. You can do that with anything. These are just helpful tools that will help you get the best result that you can. So how do individual ingredients go from scattered across your countertop to a full loaf of bread coming out of the oven? It's really quite simple. All breads start off as loose ingredients and then end up as a dough of varying consistency. 
Before starting your bread, you'll want to determine how much hydration and what kind of leaven you'll be using. Both of those things will not only determine the outcome of your bread, but also how long you should knead it, the time it needs to proof, as well as the bake time and temperature. This is especially true for your leaven. If you're making a yeasted bread, then the first step is to decide if you'll be using a sourdough starter, an overnight starter, active dry yeast, instant yeast, or fresh. Obviously, if your recipe calls for a sourdough starter, either have a mature batch on hand or start a culture about a week before you plan to bake your bread. For a single-use overnight starter, you'll want to make that the day before you plan to bake. For active dry and instant yeast, these can be incorporated right into your recipe the day you make your dough. A general rule of thumb is that the longer your leaven has to ferment, the more flavorful it will be, and the dough may not have to proof quite as long to achieve that flavor. As we talked about before, the choice of flour and salt is also important. Bread flour is designed by design, has more gluten than all-purpose flour, so it will produce a finer crumb and much stretchier dough. If you substitute bread flour for all-purpose flour, you'll end up using a lot less of it because it incorporates the water much better. So that's just something to look out for. So no longer loose ingredients, we have a dough. Bread doughs range from elastic and somewhat dense to sticky and free form, all the way to a batter-like consistency. That depends on your level of hydration and the level of gluten and protein in your flour. A high gluten, high protein, let's say 12% like bread flour, will absorb more water than a lower percentage flour like all-purpose. That isn't a bad thing, it's just something to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in the back of your head is that if, you're, you're, if you are using additional ingredients, like fillings that have fruit or olives or onions, they will add slightly more moisture to your dough. Most recipes account for that, but if you're just making it up as you go, as I am loath to do, um, adjust your hydration accordingly. Just keep that in mind. So we have loose ingredients. We have dough. Now we have proofed dough. This is also known as rising. How long a bread needs to rise is determined by the kind of yeast that you use and your expectation for the end result. Remember, the longer the rise, the stronger the fermented flavor. Most breads require anywhere from a 30 minute to a 16 hour period of proofing time. The most common time is about an hour, but some things like baguettes and ciabatta take several hours overnight to proof. Some breads even proof twice or three times, most commonly twice, once just after kneading and again after shaping. This is the time when you can walk away, clean the chicken, <laughs> clean the chicken, sorry, clean the kitchen, clean the kitchen, uh, focus on something else. So proofing is completely hands-off and there are no chickens involved, I'm assuming. I'm losing my mind. Anyway, <laughs> proofing is hands-off. Go do something else. Um, just be sure to read your recipe all the way through before you start so like, you know how much time to budget for letting your bread rise. After your bread is proofed, it goes through one final rise in the oven. Oven times and temperatures vary, but for a good-sized loaf in a home oven, expect to be baking for at least a half an hour to an hour, around 400 degrees Fahrenheit. For flatbreads that are being fried or baked, your griddle or pan needs to be hot. Very, 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 
hot. It's like pancakes. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and again, I cannot stress this enough. Read the recipe all the way through because there are always exceptions. And as we all know, the final stage of this process is a done loaf or stack of bread. Fantastic. We love it. But the question remains, how do you actually know when something is done? It's not like cake, where you can put a toothpick in it, and if it comes out clean, it's done. Short of cutting it open, you have no way to tell what's going on in the inside. So we use context clues from the outside to determine if it's ready to come out of the oven. First, maybe the most obvious, does it look done? Is it a nice golden brown? Is your bread the same color as when, as you would picture it being done? If it is, then great. It's past the first test. test. Excellent. Second, poke the bread. Poke it. If you push on it slightly, it should make a crackly sound and spring back. If it doesn't do that, then it might not be ready. Third, with a finger, tap all around your loaf. Tap it especially near the bottom. If it sounds hollow, then it's probably done. Probably got a nice bit of air in there, which means that it's not dough and it's now crumb. But beyond that, knowing when your bread is done is a matter of being familiar with the cues of when a loaf is finished. It's trial and error and something you just have to practice. But I promise that sooner or later, you'll be able to tell by just looking at it you won't even need those tricks. You'll just know. Now that we know the stages of bread making, the hypotheticals, if you will, let's run a little simulation here. Let's make a hypothetical loaf of bread. You can bake this loaf in real life alongside me, or just listen. It does not matter to me. Okay, first step, ingredients. For this particular bread, this is just my regular French bread recipe, the ingredients are four cups of all-purpose flour, two tablespoons of sugar, one and a half teaspoon of salt, a hefty pinch of whatever herbs I feel like using, two drizzles of olive oil, one and a half cups of, one, of warm water, 115 degrees Fahrenheit, has to be that, um, and from 11, two tablespoons of active dry yeast. I'm using cups in this scenario because I realize a lot of home bakers don't have a baking scale, um, and I didn't when I made this recipe. Okay, so now that we've chosen 11 and have all of our ingredients, ingredients laid out on this imaginary counter before us, uh, I'd like to set, I'd like to set out all of my ingredients on the countertop at once and then put them away as I use them. Um, it's easier for me. All right, we're ready to begin. Let's begin. For active dry yeast, you always start by whisking that, your warm water, sugar, and oil together in a bowl. It should start to bubble and expand, which is when you know that it's kicking, it's alive, it's ready for use. So in a bigger bowl, or in a stand mixer with a hook, hook mixer attachment, you combine your leaven, salt, herbs, and slowly incorporate your flour. Once your dough uh, starts to come together in a shaggy loaf, shaggy ball, it's time to knead. If you have a stand mixer with a hook attachment, you can use that to knead your bread. Just set the power to four and check it every couple of minutes just to make sure that it's not sticking to the side of your bowl. If it does and it's a high hydration dough, don't worry too much. It's meant to do that. If it's not a high hydration dough and it's sticking to the sides of your bowl, like this one is in a high hydration bowl, 
I mean, dough. Wow, that's hard to say. Uh, this one is not that. <laughs> um, if it's sticking to the side of your bowl, add a little bit of flour, just a little bit, maybe like a tablespoon at most, uh, just so it kind of comes together again. If you don't have a stand mixer, we get to do this the old-fashioned way. Right on a counter, right on a floured countertop, or on a well-floured piece of weighted parchment paper, turn out your dough. With both hands, start by folding the edges of the dough into the center. And then take the top of the dough, stretch it up, fold it over the dough so it's in half now. Now with the heels of your hand, push the dough down and out. Flatten your hand and bring it around to shape the dough into more of a ball. Repeat. If you have limited counter space, you can also knead in a bowl. Bracing the bowl with one hand, you do pretty much exactly the same thing as you would on the countertop. Except, when you push with your heel instead of pushing down and out, you push down and against the side of the bowl. Kneading is essential for gluten formation in your bread. It is what gives your bread structure and keeps, and keeps it from collapsing. Now, if you aren't comfortable with kneading, or are someone without a lot of strength in your hands, or have trouble with that pushing motion, you can also do the fold-over method. It's similar to the bowl method, where you just simply fold the dough over itself until it's elastic. I'll be including a link in the show notes to some YouTube videos about kneading if you need a visual demonstration. However you do it, knead your bread for about five minutes if you're doing it by hand, three-ish if it's in the mixer. All right, now that it's kneaded, form into a ball, plop into a bowl or some proofing basket, and let it rise for an hour covered. It should double in size. If it doesn't for some reason, leave it for a little bit longer. In the meantime, do the dishes, read a book, check on that chicken from earlier, I don't know, whatever, I don't care. But when it's done, you'll want to either turn it onto a baking sheet or in a Dutch oven. Preheat the oven to 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Never forget to score your bread. I like to do one deep score on the side and then three smaller ones on the other. Um, I just think it looks pretty. And then you bake. Again, check on the chicken, come back in 40 minutes, do a tap test, and if it meets your expectations, you take the bread out of the oven, and you're ready to serve. It's literally that simple. So this episode, I'd like to do something a little different. As the title implies, we are going back to basics. When I first started baking bread, I had to learn everything the hard way. Luckily, I had the benefit of coming from a home where my mom and my grandmother baked all of my birthday cakes, all of our holiday treats. We have boxes upon boxes of recipes for every cookie or cake or confection you can imagine. So did I grow up loving baking? Yes. Bread, however, was a novelty to all of us. And while I had the benefit of prior baking experience, I also, unfortunately, have the prior experience and unchangeable nature of being a stubborn ass and vaguely an idiot. So did I buy a cookbook or a book about bread and do my research before bread? I mean, about bread before I made it? Hell no. Did I find a recipe off of Pinterest to make one successful loaf and then think that I knew everything there was to know about bread? Absolutely. Absolutely I did. <laughs> and because I am an arrogant creature, I started making bread a lot more regularly, with full, unearned confidence. 
changing variables at random. Lo and behold, my bread was terrible for a long time until I could figure out what I was doing wrong or right and troubleshoot what I liked and what I didn't like in my loaves. My learning curve was steep. Not just because I didn't read the books and do the research, you know, but also because bread is totally different from any other kind of culinary application. The most similar thing I can think of is pastry, but only in that way that bread and pastry both seem to like have moods and tempers and minds of their own and just will do whatever they want regardless of what you, the baker, wants or intends, that kind of thing. But bread is a totally different beast from the rest of baking, because unlike cookies or cakes or pastry or pie, bread making is a style of baking that has fallen out of fashion in the home over the past hundred years or so. Most baking knowledge is passed between family members. Recipes are often passed down through generations from parents to children, grandparents to grandchildren. Even if you have a grandma like mine, whose recipes are barely more than a list of ingredients, you'd be, I mean, you'd be lucky to get a baking time. The general process and knowledge is still passed down and becomes the norm. I might not know the exact recipe of my great aunt's chocolate hazelnut cake, or your niece, niece's, I don't know, uh, lemon poppy seed cake, whatever. I don't know that, but I do know how to make a cake in general. I could muddle my way through it. For better or worse, after bread became a supermarket commodity, after it began to be mass-produced in factories, or began to be a staple of commercial bakeries, bread stopped going through that process. In the West, bread for the most part fell out of collective knowledge. That's not necessarily a bad thing. There's no survival reason why we would need to know that anymore. But it just means that you and I have to teach ourselves the wonders of bread making and try and fail in the kitchen before things smooth out. No big deal. I know that bread making can seem hard. It can seem daunting. Um, if you might not know what you're doing, it might seem intimidating. But I promise you that it's not as hard as it looks. It just takes a little bit of practice, like anything else. <laughs>